When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to the Financial Times Big Read, a weekly podcast featuring the best of our long-form reporting from around the world. I'm Madison Derbyshire from the Comment and Analysis Desk. In this episode, Alex Barker, our Brussels bureau chief, shares his latest story about the historical transition that brought Britain into the EU a generation ago. By examining the complex accession, it is possible to explain many of the most painful elements of today's Brexit talks. According to one cabinet minister, there the ghost of failure hung over the talks as it does today. Brexit, the EU and UK battle over an accession in reverse. The 280-page report is stamped confidential for a good reason. Britain's chief negotiator is crushingly frank. From the start, Europe's position amounted to making the UK swallow the lot and swallow it now. And this, he admitted, by and large, we had to do. Written for the eyes of ministers, his personal reflections are of the most sensitive kind. Britain's opening strategy had failed, the official explained. The UK embarked wanting to change the European project, but within six months had given up, realising the onus to change was on Britain itself. Transition matters became the main topic, along with Europe's extortionate financial demands. The UK negotiating hand was weak, with France trying to squeeze every advantage out of the British desire for early progress. On the matter of money, meanwhile, Germany had been rather less generous than we had hoped. It reads almost like an inside story of Brexit talks, poised for the UK Prime Minister Theresa May to sweep into Brussels for a vital meeting with European Commission President Jean-Claude Juncker on Monday and then a crunch summit on December 14th and 15th. But the paper was actually written 45 years ago, six months before Britain joined the European community. Sir Con O'Neill's report, held in the National Archives, recounts the 1970-1972 accession talks he led. It is a rare account of what it's like to make demands in Brussels when national destiny is at stake. It also offers insights into the current talks, especially into which side holds the most leverage. The UK was in the first wave of new entrants to join the original members of the European community on January 1st, 1973, and it is set to be the first to leave on March 29th, 2019. The two negotiations are a generation apart, hugely different, and moving in opposite directions. But what negotiators call Britain's accession in reverse is drawing out similar EU reflexes and habits. Both then and now, to London's great annoyance, Europe's approach has what one senior EU diplomat calls a mechanical quality. Rather than a fluid exchange between equal parties, it approaches talks as more like a process where the weaker country eventually adapts. The main variable is the pace of change, the so-called transition. 
Pascal Lamy, the former head of the World Trade Organization and two-time European Commissioner, attempted to capture the asymmetry when describing Brexit not as a negotiation, but an adjustment. On hearing that quote, one senior EU figure involved in Brexit cried, voila. Mrs May's great adjustment comes this month if, as expected, she reaches a divorce deal to conclude the most mechanical first phase of talks. From a financial settlement of 40 to 60 billion euros to the virtual enshrinement of EU rights in Brexit Britain, Britain's Prime Minister is all but bowing to EU terms. The compromises did not all go one way, but British officials are scrambling to show where they did win in more than detail. One said, we can't be seen to have given up everything. One big difference with 1971 may be the outcome. Sakon's objective was clear, membership of the European community. He had the full backing of the cabinet. And with hindsight, Sakon thought his mission proceeded under a lucky star. Even Europe's dairy surplus, the Butter Mountain, melted away at just the right moment in agriculture negotiations. Once trade talks begin early next year, Britain's first big success, they will have an open-ended deadline and an undefined goal. Mrs May will be carrying not just a divided cabinet, but a divided parliament and country. The EU, too, may be hamstrung by internal politics. For all the parallels with 1971, some wonder whether the talks will more resemble the failed 1961-1963 accession negotiation, which was scuppered by French President Charles de Gaulle. Lord Hannay, a former British ambassador to the EU who worked with Sakon on Britain's entry bid, said last week, There the ghost of failure hung over the talks, as it does today. In 1961-63, much like today, we had not really made up our minds on what on earth we wanted to do. A chain-smoking diplomat with what Lord Hannay called a remarkably sepulchral voice, Sakon's career included three resignations on a point of principle and the interrogation of the Nazi Rudolf Hess. The report on the negotiations was his valedictory for the Foreign Office. The files he reviewed ran to 150 feet of shell space. Joining the EU, much like leaving, proved a numbingly complex, unforgiving affair. They did not, to be sure, quite descend to the kitchen sink, he wrote, but they approached it. One reason was the so-called acquis communautaire, the accumulation of the bloc's common law from directives and decisions to regulations and implementing acts. When trying to join in 1961, Britain thought it had a chance to reshape the nascent club's rulebook. By 1971, there were almost 15,000 acts. Today, that acquis has grown so exponentially and so seamlessly with national law, the European Commission does not even keep track of its full size. It is, however, the non-negotiable foundation for any EU accession or exit. As a first step of membership talks, candidate countries must accept not just the principle of accepting today's acquis in full, but what it may become. Sir Michael Lee, former head of the EU's Enlargement Department, said earlier this month, It is asymmetrical. The candidate country has no choice but to accept the basis for negotiations. That goes for leaving too. With Brexit, the swallow-it-whole principle has been applied through a precondition. 
before discussing the future, the EU wanted the past untangled, from financial liabilities assumed by the EU to the rights of individuals in the Union. It required Britain to honour outstanding claims from the acquis. At the same time, a clear end point had to be agreed for Britain's EU rights. In private conversations with colleagues, Michel Barnier's team describes this divorce negotiation as coming down to a check and an end date. And one of the next big questions for the EU's chief Brexit negotiator and others to resolve is how long that adjustment, the transition, will take. In 1971, Sakon's negotiation proved to be about transition terms and relatively little else. The EC was pretty inflexible on the acquis, but it did give Britain favourable terms to adapt. So while the UK fell short of membership obligations for a few years, such as full budget payments, it would still enjoy full rights from the first day of accession. The inverse seems likely for Britain's exit transition, which Mrs May expects to be around two years. Mr Barnier's condition is that Britain accept the full acquis and the EU institutions and courts that enforce it, without the voting rights that come with membership. Mrs May's cabinet is largely ready to accept such terms in order to secure a deal by March and provide some reassurance to businesses. But it would mean that until 2021 at least, almost five years after the referendum vote, Britain will still be making full budget contributions, accepting free movement and the rulings of European courts. That dilemma highlights the potential battlefront in accession and exit negotiations. Jan Trzynski, Poland's lead accession negotiator in 2001 to 2003, said last week, Around 90% of the effort, time and nervous energy is not spent in negotiations in Brussels, but at home. It is always the hardest part. Home, 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 and home again. Mrs May will understand that feeling. She took almost six months to win backing from Brexiters for a standstill transition. Now she must attempt to resolve one of the biggest post-war ideological battles in Britain. How closely aligned should Britain stay to Europe? If a divorce deal is agreed in December, a new basis for trade between the EU and the UK must be established. Even EU negotiators expect a new positive dynamic in trade negotiations. David Davis, Brexit Secretary, predicts mutual interests will come to the fore. One senior EU27 government official handling Brexit said, In accession, you take what you are given. You comply. You are assessed. Full stop. The way out is the way into the unknown. We don't know what the British want to do. They don't know it themselves. London's fear is that the EU may be just as aimless. One senior British official said, we desperately need them to think about this strategically, not ideologically. Mrs May is clear enough about the parameters. Britain will leave the single market and customs union, end freedom of movement and restore the supremacy of national courts. EU-UK relations will be founded around a free trade deal, providing better economic access than a country like Canada, while avoiding the strictures Norway faces in the single market. What matters, though, is where the balance lies. Mr Barnier and others say that a mix of Norway-style access and Canada-style freedoms is impossible. 
establishing more clarity about what that entails may only aggravate a UK cabinet split. Time is an added factor. The 1971 team were happy to leave loose ends because UK leverage increased once it became a European Community member with full voting rights. Today, Britain's negotiators feel their clout will whittle away after Brexit Day arrives. If Britain drifts into a transition without a trade deal agreed, Mr Davis says trying to finalise an FTA under those circumstances would be very disadvantageous from a negotiating leverage point of view. It may make Mrs May's personal relations with other leaders a big factor. No single event more defined the 1971 negotiation than the day-long meeting between UK Prime Minister Edward Heath and French President Georges Pompidou, which gave the political licence to negotiators to finalise a deal. For now, Angela Merkel, the German Chancellor, and Emmanuel Macron, the French President, are taking a robust approach. While the six EC members in 1971 were to some degree split with all but France championing Britain's cause. The 27 today have shown flinty resolve and remarkable unity. London is hopeful the calculus of EU leaders will change in trade talks, but Britain's veteran diplomats are unconvinced. Sir Ivan Rogers, Mrs May's former EU ambassador, noted it is virtually never the case that EU leaders are less purist, less theological, more pragmatic and commercially driven than the ivory towers of Brussels. In a recent speech he said, the keepers of the true flame and defenders of the integrity of the project are so often the leaders. Some historians think the better parallel may be the failed 1961-63 negotiation. Piers Ludlow of the London School of Economics notes Harold Macmillan's Conservative government saw its room for manoeuvre all but destroyed by cabinet splits, dwindling popularity and a Labour opposition exploiting the European issue. He wrote, So too, Theresa May's scope for flexibility seems ever more circumscribed. Mrs May could find Sir Con's lucky star is still shining on Brexit Britain, but were he to pass advice from the grave, it may well be a touch gloomy. In his final sentence he writes, If we fail to make a success of our new position as a member of the enlarged community, then we would probably fail even more disastrously were we condemned to remain outside it. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.